Today we turn in God's word to Job chapter 11, and I'll be reading portions of Job 11, 12, 13, 14, and then 19. Not the whole thing. You'll see on page 4 an outline. On the top there, you'll notice the passages we'll be reading. So we hear the gospel and the call to worship kids. We see the visible gospel in baptism. As water washes away dirt, so the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. And now we see the promises of the gospel here in the Old Testament. Job chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Hear now God's word. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered? And a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? Job 12. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? Chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Chapter 14, verse 1. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Verse 7, for there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Verse 10, but a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? Chapter 19, verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. It was October 1st, 1975. It took place in the Philippines. It was called the Thrilla in Manila. It was the third and final boxing match between heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Ali won by technical knockout. It was regarded as one of the best and most brutal boxing matches 
in history. Loved ones, in some ways, the book of Job is like a verbal boxing match. Job is getting absolutely pummeled over and over again by words. How long will will you break me in pieces with your words, he says in chapter 19, verse 2. He pleads for mercy from his friends. They don't let up. In fact, they continue. It escalates. They're humiliating him and belittling him. They're negative and abrasive, obnoxious and offensive. He feels completely isolated, even though his friends are supposedly there to comfort him. And at the end of chapter 14, round one is in the books. The first round of each of the friends now giving their speeches. As you remember, how did we get here? Well, Job has been the object of Satan's attacks under the mysterious sovereign providence of God. His ten children are dead. His business is in ruins. He has no more physical health. He has open sores that are oozing stuff out of them. His friends come to speak to him, Bildad, Eliphaz, and now number three, today, Zophar. Probably the youngest of the friends, the most brutal of the three, the most impatient. So things get worse for Job before they get better. And yet, in the midst of this pummeling verbally, Job has hope. That's the theme of these chapters today. His friends say, you have no hope. At times, he says, I have no hope. But at the end of chapter 19, he has great hope. We want to see where that hope lies. It does not lie in what the things of the world say are filled with hope. The world says hope is kind of a wish. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope I get a good grade on the test. But this is a certainty because it's based on the resurrection of Jesus. It's a living hope, a gospel hope that not only looks to Christ's resurrection, but looks beyond the trials of this life to his promised return. First of all, we see Zophar's pride. Zophar has been listening to Eliphaz, to Bildad, and to Job's replies. And he wants to apply all of it and tie a bow on the top. He wants to bring God's vengeance down even more. So he says, basically, Job, you need to be quiet and listen to me. In chapter 11, verse 2, he says, Job, you're just full of talk. What do you talk? What do you talk? What do you talk, talk, talk? The music man, why don't you just stop talking, Job? The fool vents their feelings all the time. The Proverbs say, your babble, Job, is like the babble of a heretic, a blasphemer. You're mocking. Now, interestingly, Augustine rightly said, the world is filled with two mockers. Mockers, uh, uh, two people rather, mockers of God or praisers of God. So at this point, Zophar is saying, Job, you're mocking God. And if you remember last time, in chapter 9, verse 22, Job said, God destroys the blameless and the wicked. So as Christopher Ashe rightly points out, 
Job has said things out of his mouth that are not true of God. He has sinned with his words. And yet the problem here is this. Zophar is saying, Job, you sinned, that's why you're suffering. That's not what's going on here. Zophar has no place in his theology for lament. No place for a believer who's struggling, who's crying out to God. And so, Zophar says, someone needs to shame Job, I'm going to do it. As you read the friends, loved ones, I can't help but realize in my own heart how easy it is for us to begin to talk to people or think about people in these same ways. It's really easy for us to shame people. It's easy for us to talk about our kids or kids to your parents or kids to each other in these harsh, belittling ways. The indwelling sin in our hearts or among each other, gossiping, saying the worst about people or the way we talk of our enemy. The way we talk about people that aren't Christians, Jesus says we're to love our neighbor and love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us. So in the harsh speech of Job's friends, we see our own sin deep down. We also see the grace of God at work. This past week, after a night of mini-golfing, we were out with some of you from church, some kids and parents. I didn't realize it, but I left the dome light on in my car. The next morning, I'm away with the other car. The car with the dome light is still at home. My wife needs the car. She goes out, she tries to start the car. The battery, of course, is dead. Instead of getting hot and bothered and impatient with me, she patiently waited till I got home, and we jump-started the car together. That's marriage bonding. 101. Join with your wife and jumpstart a car. Zophar is the guy who chews you out for the dead battery, who goes into a rage because his plans are messed up and it's your fault. That's Zophar. Thankfully, that's not my wife by the grace of God. In verse 4, you see that Zophar does not listen to Job. That's also a mark of his friends. He says, Job, you yourself claimed to be clean in God's eyes. Did Job ever say that? Job never claimed to be innocent. He said, I'm blameless, meaning I'm not suffering because of a particular sin. But Job says, I'm a sinner, yes. So Zophar is not listening to him. Zophar says, Job, you want to vindicate yourself before God? Remember that last week? You want to enter into a courtroom with God? That will be your undoing, Job. Because, Zophar says, Job, you are hiding secret sin. That's really the main point of Zophar's argument in chapter 11, as Derek Thomas points out. God is being amazingly merciful to you, Job. In fact, you deserve way more punishment than you're getting. Now, as Zophar says that in verse 6, you have to realize something. In a sense, that's true for all of us. What does every sin deserve, kids, from the catechism, which comes from the Bible? The wrath and curse of God. 
So we deserve far worse. But the problem with Zophar is he takes theology and he twists it. There's no compassion. It's like a knife that's driven in. He's speaking things that at times you think that might be a true statement, but there's no love there, and it doesn't apply here. And that's the mark of Satan to do something like that. In fact, Zophar is saying, Job, you are so arrogant. Well, himself missing the log of pride in his own eye. We all have met people like this who project onto others the things that they want to avoid facing themselves, David Strain says. People who just hammer away at everyone else. They're the problem. When in our own hearts, we are the chief of sinners. Zophar goes on and he says, I'm going to teach you about God. God's wisdom is limitless, beyond comprehension. So he's saying something that's true here, but he fails to apply the doctrine to himself. A warning here to pastors and anyone who teaches. Because if God is incomprehensible, which is true, what does that mean about Zophar's view of suffering? Because in Zophar's mind, it's all black and white. If you're suffering, it's because you've sinned. If you're not suffering, it's because you're obedient. And that's just life. So Job, or Zophar fails to apply the incomprehensibility of God to his own words to Job about suffering. It's incredible, his pride. Job, you don't get God. And you don't get that I get God. That's what he's saying. We all have dealt with criticism in our lives, haven't we? Some of you are dealing with it right now. Some of our criticism that we get is very valid. Sometimes it's not valid at all. Think about a harsh boss, an overbearing parent, or a father-in-law or a mother-in-law who says, you're just never going to be good enough for my kid. We've all dealt with varying degrees of criticism. What do you think is the most deadly intimidation and criticism that you can hold over someone's head? How would you answer that? The most deadly intimidation is God. What do I mean? The Pharisees were experts at this. They used God like a club to shame other people. Their view of God forced upon someone else, their view which was not at all the gospel center view of Scripture. That's what Zophar is doing. You can't talk to someone like this because they don't listen. And they want to continue to force you to be shamed by their words. When we reflect on Zophar in our own experience, we can easily fall into this in other ways. You see someone suffering. Maybe their lifestyle is not the lifestyle that you agree that the Bible teaches. But what can we tend to do? We can tend to say they're getting what they deserve. That's what I thought would happen. And you take the principle reaping and sowing and you apply it in a harsh, unbiblical, graceless way and that's what you get in the life of Zophar and Job. He goes on in verse 12. Job, you are so foolish that when donkeys give birth to human babies, then you'll start to see some sense. That's what he says. He's name-calling. He says, 
There's hope for you, Job, verse 13, but the hope only comes if, according to my opinion, you do these things. Prepare your heart, repent, stretch out your hands, pray. Now, are those good things to do, kids? Yeah. Should we be repenting and praying every day? Yes. What's the problem then? The problem is because he has an if-then view of repentance. If you repent, Job, and Job, your iniquity and your injustice is likely because of your extortion. He's hinting that at that in verse 14. You are a rich businessman, Job, because you cheated. Because you cut the corners. He's hinting at those things in these words. If you repent, then, verse 15, your face will be lifted up without blemish. Remember, he has open sores all over himself. If you repent, there will be no bridge over troubled waters, but it'll all be water under the bridge. If you repent, your life will be brighter than noonday. What's the problem here? The first problem is there is no secret sin that Job has that is causing his suffering. That doesn't mean that there never is secret sin that can lead to suffering. We've seen that, right? Someone might be secretly committing sexual immorality and they might get an STD and they might pass that on to their husband or wife and there could be horrible physical suffering that comes of it. That's a a very serious matter that can happen, right? But in this case, it's not. But as we check our own hearts, are there sins that we've committed that we're not humbling ourselves before God about? Are we living in any sort of offense to God, grieving the Holy Spirit, wounding our conscience, where we're not experiencing the favor of God's face for a while? If so, loved ones, God's Spirit brings you to repentance. What else is going on here? The second problem is that the motivation Zophar gives for repentance is the motivation of Satan. Job, you only love God because the stuff you get from God. Remember what Satan said to Jesus? Bow down to me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Zophar is saying to Job, I'm going to give you all this stuff. I'm going to promise it to you. Health wealth, all of these physical blessings will come back to you if you repent. And loved ones, that's how we can sometimes operate in our relationships. We hurt someone we love by what we said or did. And I'm not talking about a minor, like, irritation or annoyance, but but a really major sin. We think, okay, what do I need to do to get it back to what it was before? Come on, I I just got to get back before that and everything will be fine, right? And here's how the cycle of abuse happens. That's how abusers operate. One word that's used to describe this is called gaslighting. Comes from a 1944 movie where the husband manipulates his wife so that she thinks she's going insane. He plays mind games with her. As Darcy Strickland says in a very good book about abuse, a very gospel-centered book, she starts to think that she's gone crazy because of the way he controls everything around her. So she doubts her feelings, her thoughts, 
her beliefs, everything. And then the abuser uses these techniques on other people so that he makes them think that her, that, that his spouse is crazy. That's how this works. It could be vice versa. It could be a woman to a man. It doesn't have to be a man to a woman. But that's how these cycles develop. So when someone tries to manipulate the perception someone has of their wife, this man is using his wife's mental state as a shield to defend his actions, saying she's crazy. I bring that up as a side point, as an application here. If you're in this situation, if you're dealing with this, talk to someone you can trust. Talk to a godly Christian, an elder, myself, someone else that you know, that you love, that you can talk to about these things. These are real, major issues. Another temptation is that when we're suffering, we can think, what did I do to deserve this? Where did I go wrong? And then we forget to realize the mysterious providence of God is at work. I don't understand this. But the answer is not when you're suffering, okay, I just need to be better. I need to give more. I need to serve more. I need to obey more, and then God will start blessing me. That's the theology of Zophar, who says at the end, Job, you have no hope unless you repent. Secondly, how is Job going to respond to this? With his longest response yet. He goes on and he says, you, verse chapter 12, you the people, meaning you just called me a donkey, they did. Now he's saying in a sarcastic irony, you the people, you think that you have all wisdom. That's what Zophar claimed. But if you die, it's not like wisdom will die with you. This is very sarcastic. Verses 9 and 10. He says, your wisdom is known even by the animals. So kids, he's saying his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, have the IQ of a warthog. Remember the movie, when I was a young warthog? That's what he's saying. You're like a warthog. Read through this stuff. It's very vivid. You're trying to frame me. I'm a laughing stock. In your system, people who obey are blessed. People who are suffering are sinning. But what about the robbers who have all sorts of stuff they've robbed and they're very wealthy and healthy? What about them? Verse 6. I'm not going to distort the character of God, he says. I'm not going to do what you want me to do here, Zophar. Yes, the, the sovereignty of God is beyond my mind. The hidden mysteries of God's providence. He sings a hymn about this. But your system, as Christopher Ashe says, Zophar, is cruel, shallow, tame, and deceitful. You whitewash with lies. You want to have a shallow coat of paint to make everything look tidy in the world. So everything is black and white, Zophar. But going to you is like going to a doctor where I get worse from going there. There's nothing beneficial here. There's no gospel medicine, Zophar. I've got to take my case to God. He doesn't give in to the satanic lie. And third, he brings a lament to the Lord. Loved ones, this is a good pattern 
if you have someone in your life who is acting like Zophar, by the grace of God, turn a deaf ear to them or to that unjust criticism and bring it to the Lord. Bring it to a friend. Cry out. And that's what Job does next. From chapter 13, verse 20 to 14.22, this is Job's final appeal to God until chapter 30, interestingly. So the rest of the chapters in between, he's not going to be talking to God directly. He pleads for mercy. My pain won't go away, God. My eyes pour out tears. My spirit is broken. He's like the man who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, who wrote down his responses as he's suffering, who described his condition and what lay before him as medical, psychological, mental, and spiritual changes that tossed me like a cork on the sea. Job hasn't stopped believing in God, but he's calling out, God, why don't you answer me? He's filled with despair. And in chapter 14, things get worse. He borders on fatalism. His mood shifts down. Life is frail. I'm like a flower that grows up. And by September, the petals are gone. The wind passes over it. My life doesn't make sense. I'm here today, gone tomorrow. He's pessimistic. In chapter 14, he meditates on his own sin. He says, I sinned as a youth. I'm unclean. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In chapter 14, verse 7, he says, my life is like the life of a tree. Think of a tall California redwood or something that someone chops it down and it dies. Is that the end of that tree, kids? Maybe in your own backyard. Have you chopped down a tree and have you noticed what happens maybe over months and years? A bud and a, a shoot and a bud begin to form, don't they? And if the stump is still there and the roots are still in the ground, another tree can grow up. That's what Job is saying. But that's not true for man. If a man dies, will he live again, he says? Certainly not. He says death is the end. After that, there's nothing else. These are his laments here, his despair here. He says in chapter 14, verse 14, I will wait out the days of my undeserved suffering, my existence in Sheol, the realm of the dead. Now remember, this is the Old Testament. There wasn't a lot here yet about what happens after death and the resurrection to come. There's Enoch, remember kids, who was taken up from his life and went to be with the Lord immediately, but there's not much else. And Job says, it just seems like that's it. But then a hinge, verse 14. Do you see that in chapter 14? Until his what? Renewal comes. So a turning point. Now he's contrasting what he just said. Do you notice this? And that's often what happens in our suffering. There can be lament and despair and then times of hope and encouragement. Like a rain shower in April in Minnesota when it's dreary and wet and then the sun bursts out for a few moments. He's wrestling here, loved ones. Now he's imagining the resurrection. 
this renewal. He's saying, even if I'm in Sheol, all God would need to do is speak, and I would come forth from the grave. And then he says, verse 17, my transgression will be sealed up. He's looking forward to someone who will forgive his sins. He's looking forward to the promise that if sin is dealt with, I can have a relationship with Almighty God who loves me. It's a glimpse of the gospel. It's a picture, as one writer says, of your sins being put in a garbage bag, kids. So you go and you get all the trash from around the house that mom and dad say you got to put into the bin. And you go to the family room and the bathroom and the living room and you dump it all into the big bin. And that's what Job is saying will happen with his sin. It'll be covered. There will be one who comes to make sacrifice for it, perhaps even he's hoping for, although it's a, a glimmer, it's a glimpse. But then, complete despair again. Chapter 14 ends, and he says, there's no hope for man. Everything that's solid really proves to be transitory. Mountains look immovable. They crumble eventually. God destroys the hope of man, he says. Chapter 14, verses 18 and 19. How does that happen? Through death. The wages of sin is death. He's now saying again, we're dead and there is no more. He's drowned in his suffering. He needs the hope of the gospel. And we see that forth as we turn ahead to chapter 19. Job's hope. Chapter 19 didn't come out of nowhere. Look at chapter 13, verse 15, before we go to 19. What does Job say there? Job 13, 15, one of the most famous verses in the book. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. So do you remember, Job has despair and then hope. He's going back and forth throughout these chapters. God might kill me, but I'll still hope in him. This is a turning point. He trusts that God is on his side. That no matter what these people are telling him, God is with him. God will make all wrongs right. And in chapter 19, we see that with more clarity. In verse 23, he says, Oh, that vindication would come. Oh, that my words, see that? The words of the friends are cutting him deep. Job wants his words to be not forgotten, to be written down, to be engraved in rock. God is the rock. And here we are today, loved ones. Isn't this something? Job is crying out to not be forgotten. And here we are reading this account in the almighty inspired word of God. He says in chapter 19, verse 25, I know. What does he know? He knows his Redeemer lives. And you've sung this before at Christmas time in Handel's Messiah. And here's where it comes from. By faith, he knows his Redeemer stands on the earth. He trusts that he will see him with his own eyes. He has confidence. He has the assurance of faith. He's struggling, yes. 
But this is a joyful certainty that Job expresses. He says, I believe. I have a living redeemer. Now, that word redeemer is a word we sing about. We'll sing about in a little bit. It's a word that we read in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, do you know, kids, that it covered a mighty variety of situations? It would be someone that's your close relative, maybe an uncle, a cousin, someone you're in covenant with. And say you've got an issue where one member of the family dies, say dad dies, and there's this farm that now gets transferred to someone else in the community. There's a lot of other reasons here, but let's just focus on the simple. Someone who's related to you can come and buy back that farm so kids, you and mom have a farm to live on and a place to, to work and money to make and food to eat. Or say that you have a relative that you're related to who is still unmarried. And say you're like Naomi and Ruth. Ruth, remember, was the one that was left alive who stuck with Naomi after Naomi's Husband has d- had died and the sons had died. And they go back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, after they had experienced a famine. And they're looking for someone to come to help the family as what's called a kinsman redeemer. Someone to stand for them, a champion. Someone to defend the honor of the family, to seek justice. And Boaz is that kinsman redeemer who becomes the husband for Ruth, who takes care of her and Naomi. That's the Old Testament picture of this word. It's covering all sorts of situations. And what did Job lose? His family, his job, his health. And now he says, I know I have a redeemer who lives, who will not die. And who is that redeemer? Well, it's God himself. The kinsman redeemer is the closest relative The Son of God becomes man, flesh and blood, to become our elder brother. Job has a Redeemer who lives for him, who will die for him, who will pay the penalty of the debt of sin for him, who will do what he could not do for him by bearing the judgment of his sin in his place, who will be slayed for him. Job says, though I am slayed by God, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Jesus bears that judgment and punishment. Jesus takes the wrath of God. Jesus takes our curse of sin. Jesus lives to intercede for us, to sympathize for us. Did Job get all that? Of course not. That's beyond his comprehension as he lived perhaps before the days of Abraham. But, loved ones, God is at work here. The Bible points to Christ, all of it. It can't be understood apart from Christ, the one true triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son of God who becomes a man. That's the message of deliverance, the message of redemption, the message of salvation, and it's here in seed form in the Old Testament, like an acorn that will grow over time and become an oak tree. Who is this Redeemer? Well, he'll be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5 says. Who is this Redeemer? He'll be born of a virgin, Isaiah says. 
He'll come in the fullness of time, Galatians says. Born of a woman, born under the law, to fulfill the law, to do what Job longed for, to rise from the dead. This Redeemer stands on the earth. He vindicates Job so that as Job is suffering the hurtful words of friends, as he's going through real laments, he doesn't think that the way to solve this is self-pity, to nurse a grudge, or to get back at them. That's how we all can tend to act when we're being hurt. He trusts in the middle of lament, in sorrow, in the Redeemer to come, in the Redeemer who will vindicate him, who will declare him to be just on the basis of the righteousness of this Redeemer. This will happen finally and fully. And it will result not only in Christ coming and rising from the dead, but Job says he will rise from the dead. Do you see that? He will see God with his own eyes, he says. After his skin is destroyed, his disease is layer of layer being peeled away of skin off his body. He expects after his death, although his body will decompose in the grave, in his resurrected body, he will see God. Job doesn't have a Bible to read. Job doesn't have 1 Corinthians 15 and the resurrection and John 20 to read. But he believes in the physical resurrection of the dead. How? The light that shines in his suffering is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a God-given belief. The beatific vision he anticipates. Like Paul says in Philippians 3, seeing Christ in all his glory, counting everything as loss for the surpassing glory of knowing Christ my Lord. This is personal. Job says, I know. Personally, I believe. I have assurance. I have faith that God himself is my reward. There's a story told of a missionary. He and his wife were in Africa for 40 years. As they're coming back on an ocean liner, they think, are people going to be waiting for us to remember us? They didn't know it, but on the ship was President Teddy Roosevelt. They get to New York. They see all sorts of people waving. A parade is being planned. Loud music, and they're thinking, the husband is, they did remember me. Whoa, 40 years later, as he's preparing to get off the ship, he looks behind, and who is coming behind him? Well, Teddy Roosevelt. And he says to his wife, we served the Lord 40 years in Africa. Teddy Roosevelt goes and shoots a couple elephants, and they have a parade in the whole city. What's wrong here? We come home, and people forgot us. You know what she says to him? You're not home yet. God is our reward. We're not living for life in this world. Neither is Job. Job is not living for earthly praise and comfort. Earthly life is not the ultimate value for Job. Job is living for God who gives life. His heart faints within him, he says. His kidneys, literally, not just butterflies are in his stomach, kids, as he thinks of seeing God, 
elephants are rumbling in his stomach at the thought of seeing his Savior face to face. Some of your loved ones have gone to see Jesus face to face, some recently, some long ago. They're not dead. They're alive. They've gone from the land of the dying to the land of the living with the Lord. That's what we long for. To live is Christ. To die is gain. The longings of Job's heart are to stand before the God he loves and to worship and enjoy him forever in a resurrected new heaven and a new earth with a resurrected body. Dear Christian, is that the longing of your heart? Job speaks truly, and he also speaks directly. He warns his friends at the end of chapter 19 that the coming resurrection will impact them as well, that the resurrection of the body, the return of Christ, and the last judgment are all going to happen at the same time. And Zophar, who in chapter 20 will talk about the wrath of God, is warned by Job in love of the sword of God's judgment. Hell is real. The wrath of God is terrible indeed, but we must never use that to shame someone or to beat someone, but to point them to the only Savior from this wrath to come, who is Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation, the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sins. As we do so, loved ones, we're reminded that one day evil will be vanquished. Some of the sufferings you experience may continue until the day of your death. But the Lord says, righteousness will triumph. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. There will be a day of renewal. There will be a day of rejoicing that no eye has seen, that no ear has heard. This is a certain hope. Why is it certain? Because as Peter says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. To what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Father, that hope that is alive is alive because Christ has burst through the bonds of death. It is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And Father, help us to rejoice in that hope even as we are grieved now by various trials. And we pray, as Peter says, that though we have not seen the Lord, we love him. That though we do not now see him, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.